Welcome to Our Hen House. This is Marianne Sullivan. And this is Jasmine Singer. And this week, Jasmine will be speaking with Aaron Rimler-Cohen, who will be catching us up on some really important policy work going on at Farm Sanctuary that is focused on encouraging major shifts in our food system with a long-term goal, of course, of ending animal agriculture. Farm Sanctuary is doing some interesting stuff these days. Yeah, this is a very cool interview. He's, He's super smart and I just really enjoyed our conversation. So I am looking forward to that. And it's good to get my mind off of the rigmarole. You know, sometimes life is just busy and squished with too many things and then it comes down and I think I'm in the former right now. Yeah, you're really annoying right now. Like you just constantly have something else you have to do. And here we are. We're actually doing this uh, segment together. We usually do it over the internet, but my internet is down. I had to run over here to, to sit next to you. And then whenever we do it together, we start giggling. So be prepared for that. Maybe now that I've said it, we won't. So yeah, all like all you do is talk about, no, I, I can't do that. No, I can't do that. No, I, I don't say I... No, I have to do this. Like That's not true. I say I, you're right. But next week, I am guest hosting four episodes of Connections, which is a talk show in Rochester that is on WXXI, which is the NPR station here. And Connections is a really thoughtful show. And Evan Dawson hosts it. He's completely brilliant. He's going to be out. And so I'm covering for him. And I'm having a blast putting these shows together, but it is definitely very all-consuming. And I don't understand how he does 10 episodes a week normally. No, I, he makes me feel like a com- com- complete loser. Like, <laughs> yeah, I think that's his goal, actually. It's like my goal when I get on my Peloton. I'm trying to make other people feel good about themselves when they look at the leaderboard. And I'm yet another enough. I was just saying, I am basically doing the world a favor by working out. So. Anyway, I'm in a good place. I've learned master control. I'm I'm in a good place with it. Every time I go to start my show on the weekend, which weekend edition, I sit in the studio. It's like first thing in the morning. And I sit there and I go red pleather, yellow pleather, red pleather, yellow pleather. Because, you know, when I was in college for theater 100 years ago, it was red leather, yellow leather. We, we all I think we all know that. Like, not that you were in college, but we all remember red leather, yellow leather. When did you do red leather, yellow leather? I don't know. Like, at some point in my life, like, Peter Piper picked a pack. Yeah, he did. So, you know, it was one of those things that was hard to say that people would say. I don't know. I turned it into pleather because that was very vegan of you. Very vegan. And so let's discuss pleather. I was inspired by this thread I saw on Twitter, and it's talking about this article in The Atlantic by one Amanda Mull about pleather and, you know, all of the problems with pleather. Here's the quote from the article. Here's the thing. So far, the only problem that's been solved in fashion is one of marketing. Pleather is still pleather, and its elevation as an unalloyed good shows how easily sustainability can be wielded as a thought-terminating cliché. Now, I mean, she probably has a point. I do see the term vegan leather all the time now, and I I always get excited when I see it. And I do tend to think, yeah, it's probably better than the old stuff. And, you know, probably 99% of the time, it's not. But the thing that's frustrating here and that is pointed out by, I I mentioned that I got this thread from Jan Dudkiewicz. (laughs) 
like you can't just talk about this the problems with the substitute. You have to talk about the problems with the things it's substituting for. So he said one product relies on the mass scale slaughter of animals and every externality of their production. The other is a deeply flawed but objectively less harmful alternative. Exactly. To write an entire article about all the problems with pleather and not point out that there are like unbelievably huge problems with with leather. It just drives me crazy. And it really reminds me of something that happened to my class. We were talking about environmental sustainability issues. One of my students mentioned the problems with particularly water regarding almonds and avocados to, you know, popular plant-based foods. He had no idea. And I don't blame him at all because it's never talked about. Why does everybody, everybody knows about almonds and nobody knows about dairy taking up a million times more water? I'm exaggerating a little bit. It's not a million, but you know, it's way up there, but much more water than almonds. Also in Cal, huge California being a huge dairy state. Talk about marketing. You can just see the industries behind this talking about uh, finding all the problems with the things that, that are being substituted for them. And, you know, successfully getting people to ignore the problems with the things that are already there that are destroying the earth and all the animals. Speaking of destroying the earth, I think I mentioned to you, I, I got an electric car about, I don't know, like a couple months ago. It's a, it's a lease. We've actually named the car a lease. Yeah. <laughs> and I didn't know that. Yeah. Thank you. So anyway, I recognize all of the privileges and everything I'm saying right now. I just feel the need to say that sentence. But, uh, you know, we're a one-car household. We ride our, all right, all right, all we right. ride our e-bikes in the summer. Okay. So let me just say, it is the stupidest thing on earth that any e-car, well, any car, anything in life, really, but especially e-cars, have leather seats. And, like, they might not even, it's not even just the luxury cars. I mean, I've been kind of casually looking for a car too because my car is really old like it might not have leather seats and then it will will feature its leather steering wheel like who needs a leather steering you know like can't they just leave the leather out of these cars i think it is changing though especially as there's innovations in leather like you know coffee leather and pineapple leather and all of those weird things that are great for marketing when you know i think we were just fine before but I guess a lot of these are much more eco-friendly than like, you know, the plastic stuff that used to be at Payless. Remember when we all shopped at Payless because there was nothing else? They had such cute shoes. I like their shoes. I don't, I'm not sure this is, most of the stuff out there is any better. I mean, there are, there are the new leathers, which are probably extremely sustainable, like the ones made of mushrooms and pineapple, but most of the ones they're using in cars. And you do see the term vegan leather used all the time in cars. They do love that. And she is pointing out that, you know, this is a marketing term. It's just the same, probably the same, you know, plastic that they've always used. But, but the, you know, just to reiterate, don't talk about it. Like, you know, don't use either of them. The point, like, if you think that it's, that pleather is bad, then get cloth. It's not, it's not like the world is depending on us having either leather or a substitute for leather. It's a completely stupid product. Or you can get red pleather, yellow pleather, red pleather, yellow pleather. Yes, yes, you 
you can. Also, the other thing that was pointed out in this thread, which I think is so important to remember, they always tried to characterize leather as a byproduct of the beef and dairy industry. Right. It's not a byproduct. It is a necessary income stream to make those industries profitable. It, like that doesn't make it a byproduct. It's just one of the things that, that puts money in the pocket of the people killing these animals. I am so happy, though, that the vegan leather thing is a marketing term that is kind of catching on because a couple of things happened in the last week that have depressed me so much around the possibility or lack thereof, in this case, of getting people to change by appealing to their hearts and minds. I don't think it's going to happen. And I do think we'll still get where we want to get, but it's going to be a roundabout way and it's going to be marketing and it's going to be convenience and it's going to be trendiness. But in my, I don't know, the last couple of weeks just have been really sad in terms of recognizing otherwise progressive people just you know, there's meat in their ears. Yeah, actually this is, I, I couldn't sleep last night. So I, I was thinking a lot about this whole issue because it kind of came up on an interview I had done. And I think that what we have to remember is it's not going to work on everybody. The plea to compassion is not going to work on everybody. It works on a very small subset of people. And we have to keep seeking them because we have not uncovered all of those people. We don't need everybody to change because of because of their hearts. Uh, most people will change just because everybody else is changing. Uh, so we just need leadership. The whole point in doing all of this and appealing to compassion is to find the leaders. I mean, I guess that especially occurs to me because I do teach and, you know, there are young people. You just see, like, you just see some of them just get it. Not that many, not a majority, but some of them immediately are like, oh, wow, this is awful. And others, they also think it's awful. But then they forget about it, I'm sure, when they leave the classroom. It's just a different, people are different. Most of them are fox. Most of them are fox or fox? Fox. Oh, okay, because your cat's name is fox. fox. To be a fox is a is a compliment in so many different ways. I love your sloth socks, by the way. Oh, thank you. Didn't you give them to me? Oh, I might have. Yeah, I guess that's why I love them. People might be thinking, what did she say? Sloth socks. They're socks that have sloths on them. I think you've just found the new substitute. Sloths. <laughs> sloth socks. Sloth socks. Yeah, you're right. All right, let's get to our interview because it's been a long time of coming and I really think the world of Aaron's brain and I'm really excited about sharing this interview with you. Yeah, absolutely. Aaron Rimler-Cohen is the Senior Director of Advocacy at Farm Sanctuary. He recently assumed that title after spending the previous 18 months as the Senior Manager of Farm Sanctuary's Food System Shift program, investigating how a platform of just and sustainable food system transformation can, over the long term, end animal agriculture. Aaron has previously worked in relevant director-level roles in politics, agriculture, and at a community-based food system consultancy in North Carolina, and has a Master of Public Policy degree from Duke University, where he also served as a co-instructor on well-being economics. And he will be joining Jasmine right after this. 
If you like what you're listening to, and I hope you do, then please consider taking a minute out of your day today to leave us a friendly review. You can do it on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify or Stitcher or on Facebook or wherever you listen to podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. The more we get out there, the more our hen house will be in front of people's eyeballs when they're putting in search terms in their podcasts and the more we could join forces together to elevate the voices of the animals and change the world for them. So thank you so much in advance for leaving us a friendly review. Welcome to our hen house, Erin. Hello, it's so wonderful to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. I'm completely thrilled to talk to you. So I have a lot that I want to cover with you. You're doing a lot of really cool work. So I'll start with this. Animal advocacy organizations like Farm Sanctuary have always made it like a centerpiece of their advocacy to end animal agriculture, starting with factory farming. But obviously, we will still have to feed everyone. And while there may be theoretical arguments that this is going to be much easier and better once we end animal agriculture, we need more than theory. So you talk about advocacy as having to include building the good, which makes so much sense to me. And I love the way you put it. So in a nutshell, what is the good that needs to be built? Sure. And thank you for asking. I think it's in a nutshell, how do we build just and sustainable food systems that can nourish everyone without harm? And often for us, building the good as a national nonprofit, and by the way, a national nonprofit that's historically white, historically wealthy, we have an obligation to shift resources to the community-driven change makers that are building the good and have often building these more just, sustainable, plant-based food system supply chains that could one day nourish everyone for decades. And they've been doing without support and without resources. So our question is, how do we use our network, our membership, our rescue, education, and advocacy approaches in order to support those community change makers and in order to support policies to build the kind of plant-based food system supply chains that can nourish everyone and do so in ways that support animals, people, and the planet. Oh, very well said and so important. So Farm Sanctuary is, of course, a sanctuary for animals. So why is a farmed animal sanctuary a good starting place for doing this kind of advocacy? Yes. And really, when you ask me that, I think back to like Gene selling vegan hot dogs under the banner dedicated to end factory farming, right? Like rescue has always been a part of an overarching strategy to do two things. Number one, in factory farming and end animal agriculture writ large. And number two, build the good, build a space for individual transformation. And that individual transformation happens for the farmed animals who are taken out of this horrifying factory farming system and are able to live more free and fulfilled and vibrant lives on sanctuary. And that transformation also happens for the individual visitors who come to sanctuary and who can experience a human farmed animal relationship that's not one of extraction or exploitation, but one of mutuality. Gene always says, friends, not food, right? And I think part of that is recognizing the emotional and thoughtfulness that comes with being a farmed animal and living as a farmed animal. And often within the vegan movement, we talk about the immense harm that's caused not only to animals, but also to people on the planet. But I think when a lot of people hear that word harm, they think of physical harm. 
And that physical harm is clear and it happens all across the factory farming process. But there's also a kind of continuous horrifying harm that's happening to these social thinking, emotional beings who are living in the worst imaginable conditions, Mm -hmm. right? And so I think that with sanctuary, we can start to recognize the power of our lives and we can say our lives collectively, animal beings, human beings, and we can say, hey, the factory farming system and the factory food system for animals is horrifying and it does not allow them to live the kind of lives that they deserve. And the same thing is true for people. The factory food system prevents the kind of fulfilling life that is deserved all across the food system supply chain. And that's for farmers, workers, for folks who are within our shared environment. You know, I'm here in North Carolina and I'm well aware that not only are 9 million pigs my neighbors, but also those pigs are situated in factory farming conditions that create horrible outcomes for the black and indigenous communities primarily who are living near those factory farms. And so we can recognize the kind of lived experience at sanctuary that comes with factory farming and also the possibility of a more fulfilled life. And we can recognize that the harms that are caused are different across farmed animal beings and human beings. And we can also recognize that the harms caused by our factory food system are intersectional and compounding and often reflect and perpetuate systemic racism. Mm. Yeah, well, there's a lot there. So obviously, completely changing the way we raise food is a big job. So let's break down how to build the good into some of its parts. Let's talk about allies. Who do you believe will be part of this fight? I think we all have to. I think we have to realize that today's food systems work for nearly no one outside of a few multi-million dollar landowners and a few multi-billion dollar corporate investors and corporate consolidators. That's who we've built today's food system for. And so we need to meet folks where they are and we need to say, hey, if you care about food because of your health, if you care about food because of the sustainability of our planet, right? 33% of global greenhouse gas emissions come from the food system, but only 3% of public financing for climate change goes into food. So it's this underserved, underrepresented category that we need to uplift. Food matters whether you care about social justice or vibrant rural and urban economies or animal well-being. And I think we can care about all of those things. And I think that by meeting folks where they are, And by saying, hey, how do we work together to build a food system that works better for all of us, animals, people, and the planet, we can all be involved. But then I think there's this question of who should take a leadership role. And when I think about who should take a leadership role, I think about our amazing partners like the Eva Clayton Rural Food Institute in Henderson, North Carolina. They came out of the Green Rural Redevelopment Organization, which is this amazing Black-led micro farming enterprise that connects public aggregated distribution with so basically getting a bunch of farmers together who wouldn't normally have enough crops to be able to sell it to market and getting those crops together and selling them to the local schools, selling them to the local hospitals so selling them to the local child and adult care food facilities and not only are they building health and wealth and racial justice they're also building a food system that's predominantly plant-based and moving towards entirely plant-based, right? And I think we have to recognize that 
in order to end animal agriculture, that's probably, if we're being realistic, not a two-year, not a five-year journey to ending animal agriculture. I think about Gene again, it was 1986, and we've come a long way. But if we recognize that our ultimate goal is to end animal agriculture, we can pick up so many allies along so many steps of the way that can get us to food system supply chains that are not only 80, 90, 95, 99% plant-based, but also just and sustainable. And so I think about folks like the Eva Clayton Rural Food Institute. I think about folks like the Sakongu tribe in South Dakota who we're learning from and supporting. And I think about the ways in which we knew how to nourish everyone in ways that were symbiotic with our shared environment and the ways in which that knowledge was lost. And it was lost by people who looked like me and sounded like me. And we're going to learn from folks predominantly who don't look like me and sound like me. Mm. But what we can do as Farm Sanctuary and what we can do as allies is meet folks where they are, learn from them, support them, and build a platform where we can all work together for food system transformation that works for all of us. So let's stick on this subject for a moment. I told you before we started recording that I used to be the campaigns manager for Farm Sanctuary. It was like more than 15 years ago at this point, I think. And I worked out of New York City. And I had some issues with these coalition building endeavors. I had some issues when people literally brought to the table animal products while I was representing Farm Sanctuary. It has traditionally been very hard for vegan organizations such as Farm Sanctuary to find common ground with advocates for small, sustainable agriculture that wants to include animal agriculture. Do you agree? And if so, what is your approach to that difficulty? Absolutely. It's difficult, but also I think so much has changed over the last decade and it's changed in ways that mean that not only do folks want us at the table, but they're also much more appreciative of our compassion, our kindness, and our values. I think that we are in a fundamentally different place as whether you want to call it an animal-centered or a plant-based or a vegan movement, whatever you want to embrace as your identity, we are wanted at the table more than ever before. And I think what they want from us is, number one, for us to never forsake our own values, right? I tell them our long-term goal is to end animal agriculture, and our mission statement is to pursue bold solutions to end animal agriculture and foster just and compassionate vegan living. That's who we are. And if you can respect that, we can respect who you are and what you're trying to do for your community and what you're trying to do to build good for the food system that you see as nourishing folks without harm. And I think what's amazing and what I'm seeing is when you get in the room with them and you say, let's start with a foundation of respect and let's start with shared priorities and recognize how we might be able to accomplish some wonderful things by working together. If you start with that conversation, they get much more vegan, much more animal centered, much more plant-based over time. And so they might bring animal product to that first meeting, but by the fourth, they're not. And by the sixth, they're talking about how amazing the plant-based vegan ravioli thing that they had was. And, and, and to see that kind of transformation requires being in the room and it requires starting with respect. And I understand how difficult it can be for us as vegans to not center the emotionality that we feel and that we rightfully feel. But I think that in order to 
move towards the kinds of systemic change that we need to end animal agriculture, we have to embrace that meet show where you are approach that Gene always talks about. Totally agree. Completely. So switching gears just a bit, subsidies are, you know, as we all know, they're a huge part of the problem of keeping factory farms in business. So can you first talk about the big commodity subsidies and how they work? Yes. So the U.S. invests tremendous resources into our food systems, and most of them support, like I said, the billionaire investors and the millionaire landlords who own giant tracts of land in the Midwest and the Mountain West. And actually, the way in which our subsidy system works has changed a couple times over the last decade. But basically, what you need to know is they're going to help you on the front end to get loans that are subsidized by the public. And that means that they get really cheap debt to buy more land, to expand, to industrialize even further. And then they get guaranteed profits through essentially revenue-based insurance. And what revenue-based insurance is, is government or the USDA's phrase for, if you're not making a certain level of profits this year, we'll take care of you. And we only give it to basically corn, soy farmers. There's like technically corn, soy, wheat, sorghum, cotton, sugar, those kinds of big commodities, but it's basically corn and soy. And why are we giving it to corn and soy? It's not the corn and soy that you're eating for the most part in the supermarkets. It's feed, it's fuel, and it's supporting industrial inputs for foreign countries. Mm. That's what we're subsidizing. And we're subsidizing it through cheap credit and through guaranteeing profits. And we do it for the industrial inputs that run our global food system, but we don't do it for the fruits and vegetables that actually nourish people. Do you have hope there, by the way? My book that came out a couple of years ago, it was called The Veg News Guide to Being a Fabulous Vegan. And when I was doing the chapter on the subsidies, I was like, I don't know, man, this is big. Like, do you have hope? So I look at the subsidies in a slightly different way. I think that the commodity crop and the big industry subsidies that we always talk about and that I just ran through are going to be the last thing that fall. It's going to be the last thing that kind of leads to the collapse of factory farming. I think the first thing that we can do in the meantime is set aside how horrible all of that programming is for just a second and set aside the credit and loan subsidies for a second. And 85% of our federal food investments are actually nutrition subsidies, school food service, and different other kinds of conservation services that I think can be shifted to better support food that nourishes people and supply chains that work for animals, people, and the planet. So, for example, those revenue-based subsidies, or if you look at the Environmental Working Group, how much you're spending in a given year by the uh, U.S. taxpayer dollar, right? It's somewhere between $10 billion and $25 billion a year. And if it's a particularly bad year because of the weather or because of Trump's trade war, it might be $45 billion a year. But we spend $30 billion a year on our school food and associated child and adult care feeding services. And we spend 70 to, depending on the economic conditions of the country, $100, $110 billion a year on SNAP, on nutrition assistance. And we can use those huge pots of money to incentivize plants and plant-based food purchasing, processing, and production that can build the supply chains that can nourish everyone. 
And then once we've got those big, robust plant and plant-based food system supply chains that are nourishing more people, that are more community-driven, that are more resilient, then we can go and we can say, we don't need these commodity subsidies anymore. Get rid of all of them. And then at that point, I think we have a political argument that says we can nourish everyone. And by the way, it's amazing, right? The, we do these commodity subsidies because big ag says they're feeding the world. This farm bill, that needs to be the the number one lie that we take down, right? We can't even feed our own communities. Right. I care about getting to a world that is 100% plant-based, but I think the vast majority of people in the United States of America think we should be building food systems that nourish everyone. Mm-hmm. Alternative funding. I really like it. That does give me hope. I'm not given hope off. So thank you, Aaron. Speaking of your vision, your vision includes a more community-focused approach to food infrastructure. You touched on that a bit. But can you talk a little bit about why that would lead to less reliance on animal agriculture? Yeah, absolutely. And so I think we first have to just look at the communities that are doing this kind of community food infrastructure work. So Boulder, Colorado, for example, built a kitchen for its public schools, and it dramatically increased the amount of plants and plant-based food that went into the schools. And also for the animal product that it had, it prioritized animal welfare. It's one of the only schools in the country to actually prioritize animal welfare in its purchasing. So obviously that's not enough, right? We want to get to a place that's 100% plant-based, but I... But in a world where we have municipalities prioritizing animal welfare as a stated priority, that's a world that can lead to real shared progress for everyone. And that's happening not just in Boulder, Colorado, which is, let's say, quite progressive. It's also happening in Missoula, Montana and Pittsburgh and in towns here in North Carolina and all across the country. It's a scalable model. And the way it works is it provides a purchasing point for plants and plant-based foods, right? We just got done talking about how plants and plant-based foods don't get all of the subsidies that come from the federal government. So what this does is it provides an anchor point for purchasing for farmers who are growing those plants and plant-based foods. And it also provides a processing point because what a lot of folks don't realize is that you might be getting sweet potatoes that were grown three miles away from your house But those sweet potatoes might have been processed 300 miles from the farm. Mm -hmm. So that's still 600 miles of food travel for those sweet potatoes. And it makes no sense. And it's because we don't have the kinds of supply chains that can support plants and plant-based foods. So when we think about community food infrastructure, like kitchens for schools, like food hubs connected with local processing facilities, what we're doing is we're building the supply chains that can support plants and plant-based foods that can nourish everybody without harm to animals, people, or the planet. Okay, so to summarize those points that you recently made, what support do you want to see the the federal government give for this shift? Yeah, three things. Number one, we can pass Susan Collins' School Food Modernization Act. It's a Republican bill. It's a great bill. It's a good start. Number two, we can give schools and community-based organizations access to the kind of subsidized credit that we give all of the industrial farmers. So that means municipal bonds that are cheaper for food infrastructure, and that also means uh, social impact bonds to achieve the kind of food system transformation outcomes that we want to see in the world. Those kinds of social impact bonds are working in child services and carceral services 
in terms of reducing recidivism, not in terms of actually getting out of our carceral complex, but that's a different conversation. And so let's give communities Hmm. the long-term support that they need to build this infrastructure. And that means loans, and that means the kind of grants that exist in Susan Collins' School Food Modernization Act. Okay, and then so that was my second question, which is to, just so that we're totally clear, to summarize the role that school food has in this shift? Yeah, so school food is something that we spend tremendous money on at the federal level, but we all have choices at the state and local level about how we can make those procurement choices. And so we can do two things. We can give schools and communities the money that they need to build the infrastructure to actually process plants and plant-based foods, And we can also incentivize plants and plant-based foods. So like, take a look at Michigan. They're doing an amazing program where they subsidize in-state fruits, vegetables, and legumes. Mm -hmm. So 10 cents a meal for Michigan farmers, right? If that's a nationwide policy, schools have better incentives to buy local fresh produce and also legumes as a replacement for protein. And that passed in Michigan with Farm Bureau support, by the way. Oh, interesting. So it's possible. Everything you're saying is possible. You're not just like a philosopher who's like, maybe we could do this if that happened. No, I mean, yeah, I I cited a Republican bill, a Farm Bureau policy in Michigan, and a like really wonky loan proposal. And I think that's the thing that we need to kind of recognize is that we can fight against factory farming, but to actually start shifting resources to build the plants and plant-based food system supply chains that we need, mm-hmm. it's going to take kind of wonky, insidery sounding policies to start shifting money and start shifting resources to go to where it needs to go to work for everybody. So what about the Healthy Future Students and Earth Pilot Program Act? I know that I- Farm Sanctuary is supporting that bill. What is it? Yeah, it's a beautiful bill. And I think that it's exactly the kind of pilot program that if scaled could also lead to anchoring plants and plant-based foods as an option for every child in America. So basically what it does is it provides money to start scaling for 50 schools across the country, I believe was the last version of the bill, to provide plants and plant-based foods as an option for any student who asks for it. And it's an amazing bill because it not only provides grant money, but it also provides support for the kinds of infrastructure needs that we were just talking about. Mm. And I think, by the way, it's also a wonderful way to organize with farmer environment justice-centered organizations who recognize school food as an important priority for them as well. Excellent. How would you keep it plant-based? So the Healthy Future Students and Earth Pilot Program Act is an exclusively plant-based. Oh, fascinating. Okay. The meals are required. And I think that's the difference between like the Michigan policy, which is like a 10-cent incentive, and it doesn't require every meal to be fully plant and plant-based. So that's passable in the short term. And then the Healthy Future Students and Earth Pilot Program Act, that's required to be plant and plant-based. And that's, I think, a beautiful long-term solution. So when is the next farm bill and what are you advocating for? Absolutely. So the farm bill is this year. It happens every five years. And basically the way to think about it is it's 85% nutrition assistance and then 15% factory farm bailout. And so we're saying, number one, stop the factory farm bailout, pass Earl Blumenauer, Cory Booker, Shelley Pingree's 
Food and Farm Act. It's a great alternative. In 2017, Friends of the Earth promoted it. ASPCA called it the most important animal-centered piece of legislation that year. The Food and Farm Act is a great alternative to the Farm Bill. And then number two, let's build in fruit and vegetable incentives into SNAP purchases for everybody. So if we know that 85% of the Farm Bill is SNAP is nutrition assistance, why shouldn't every person in the country, no matter where they shop, whether it's a farmer's market or a grocery store, get 30 cents cash back for dried, fresh, frozen fruit and vegetable purchases? It's a common sense policy. It scales a Massachusetts pilot that worked in 2010. The Biden administration just said fruits and vegetable incentives is his number one priority. I say we uh, hold his feet to the fire on that one and give fresh dried frozen fruit and vegetable incentives to every person on SNAP in the country, uh, no matter whether they're close to a farmer's market or not. Totally. And by the way, I'm completely on board, obviously, with the idea that plant agriculture should replace animal agriculture. I mean, bring it on. But can you explain why you think that in order to achieve that, we should favor small farms over big, perhaps corporate farms? Like, isn't big potentially more efficient? Sure. So I think we do need a mixed approach. So I would never say that we need an exclusively community-driven food system, right? We had a agricultural system uh, in the late 19th century, early 20th century, where 50% of people were farmers. We're not going to go back to that. But number one, currently, the industrial crop production that happens in the United States causes immense harm to farm workers and immense harm to our environment. And we need to be okay saying that crop production today isn't perfect. That doesn't mean that you're not doing immense good by going vegan. That doesn't mean that you're not doing the least harm practical by being vegan. It just means that we need systems change. Mm -hmm. And there are certain things that we can do through our individual purchasing habits. And there are certain things that we can do by organizing together. And building a food system where the crops are grown and the money flows back into the community a little bit more is moving an extremely consolidated and extremely industrialized system back to a more balanced one. Mm -hmm. So I think that's how I think about it. Okay, that makes sense. What, what are the most important crops that need to be grown right now to support a transition to a healthier food system? Yeah, so I think that there's two sets of crops. There's the crops that nourish people directly, so that's fruits, vegetables, legumes, grains that are going to nourish people and aren't currently incentivized. And then there's the kind of inputs that can support plant-based meats. And we haven't talked about plant-based meats yet, but I do think if we just step back and say, hey, what are all of the different opportunities that we have to meet folks where they are and to start shifting preferences? Plant-based meats could be in the future potentially useful. But also, if we step back and say, what are our big strategies for getting to an environmentally sustainable decarbonized future? We have two strategies in this country. Number one, electrify everything. And number two, create carbon sinks. And plant-based meat production is essentially the electrification of meat production. It fits in perfectly with what the environmental advocates want. And by the way, on the carbon sink, we don't need to wait for direct air capture. 
if we uh, set aside 10% of U.S. farmland in this country to support agroforestry, that would sink 30% of all U.S. greenhouse gas emissions. Not 30% of food system emissions, 30% of all U.S. greenhouse gas emissions by setting aside 10% of U.S. farmland for our agroforestry. So the food system can be this amazing carbon sink getting us to a decarbonized future, and we need to grow crops that can serve as inputs to plant-based meats in that way, in addition to the fruits, vegetables, legumes, grains you might be thinking about. I love that. I just want you to know that I want the last 30 seconds of our conversation to play on repeat in my house. So I was just going to ask you how climate change enters into this conversation, but you did sort of just cover it. Is there anything else you want to add about that? Yeah, just that our environmental crises are both local and global, right? Factory farming is a problem, not just because it's accelerating climate change, but also because it's poisoning people's water and poisoning people's air and causing immense harm to people and often in ways that reflect and perpetuate structural racism. And whether it's the Des Moines Water Works suing the national pork producers for what they're doing to their rivers and streams or what's happening here in North Carolina, the environmental crises that are caused by factory farming are about water and air and soil in addition to climate. And we need to be thinking about it as such if we want to build allies and meet folks where they are. Mm -hmm. What is the Food System Shift Trust? Yes. So this is, I think, both a short-term pilot project and a long-term idea. So the short-term pilot project is, number one, how can we support great community-driven organizations that can potentially start to scale these more just, sustainable plant-based food system supply chains? How can we support from? How can we support them, and how can we learn from them? And so, the uh, Eva Clayton Rural Food Institute in Henderson, North Carolina, is one of those partners. The Sakangu Community Development Corporation, uh, which represents the Sakangu Tribe in South Dakota on the Rosebud Reservation, is another partner. And so right now what we're doing is shifting monetary resources and understanding how we could start to build both community-driven and more national food system supply chains around their members and around their production approaches. And then number two, I think that over the long term, we need as vegans a vehicle to not just invest our money as consumers, but to invest our money ethically as investors. Usually we typically say like, oh, I'll put it into my 401k or my index fund and I'll forget about it. Mm -hmm. And what we forget when we do that is we're reinvesting in the entire U.S. economy, which often means reflecting and perpetuating all of the harms that come with, in particular, food production in the United States. And so what we're trying to do with this Food System Shift Trust is build a real estate investment trust component that is going to allow vegans two years from now, three years from now, all across the country to say, hey, 5% of my investment savings, I want to go into this trust that's going to help transition land ownership and transition land use to be just sustainable and plant-based. I love that. Yeah, I think that and it, it's also it can embolden activists, it can embolden vegans to be able to feel like we can do something so would the land held by the trust be completely free of animal agriculture? Yes. So I think we're still working out exactly how the details of a food system shift trust could work. And also who owns land and who possesses land is a question of both our food system supply chain outcome goals and also questions of justice. 
So for example, we're not requiring that everything that the Sakangu tribe does within their community be fully plant and plant-based. That would not be respecting their cultural heritage. It would not be respecting their food sovereignty. But what we do request is that any of our resources and any of our support only support plant and plant-based food. That's how we've started to build this sort of common ground in a technical way. But we actually haven't gotten to the point where we're buying land or shifting land. And one of the tools that we've been building out in a different capacity is called a compassion easement. And so when you think about what Gene did when he started the sanctuary movement is create all of these amazing, you know, a couple hundred, at least across the country now, facilities to house farmed animals, which is a beautiful thing within the paradigm of mutuality and respect. But what we realized was if you don't have a good succession plan, and if you just said, hey, how should this land be used? The land could be sold to future animal agriculture farmers. And that is the last thing we want. So one of the tools that we've been designing is called a compassion easement that would prevent animal agriculture or the exploitation of animals on the land in perpetuity in a way that's legally enforceable. Mm. And so we can apply that on our own land because obviously those are our own values and we can test that uh, with other sanctuaries across the country. And I think ultimately we can get to a place where we're fully respecting our values of having a fully plant-based vegan food system supply chain even as we're working with partners who might be 80, 90, 95% of the way there. So you've talked in this context about farm sanctuary achieving shift, i.e. sustainable, healthy, interconnected, frontline-led transformation. Why is there nothing specifically about animals within those stated goals? I so appreciate this question. And I think when we developed the quote-unquote, food system shift approach, we were doing it within the banner of our mission statement, which was to pursue bold solutions to end animal agriculture and foster just and compassionate vegan living. Mm -hmm. So in some ways, to me, the shift approach is a description of process. And that process will never include animal exploitation. And I think part of what that shift approach does is it also starts to get at an act of shifting financial resources, social resources, political resources away from the national nonprofits who have typically fundraised for self-perpetuation as much as for impact to support the community-based organizations that are actually building the just sustainable plant-based food system supply chains that can one day nourish everyone. Mm -hmm. So when, when will it launch? So the pilot projects have already launched. You're hearing this in April, so that means we are four, four and a half months in pilot partnerships. Uh, we've shifted resources. We're learning how uh, they're being used. Already, we've seen incredible outcomes. So, for example, we provided seed funding to the Eva Clayton Rural Food Institute. They had their kickoff, bringing together more than 200 farmer, funder, worker, environment, justice, community-driven organizations, animal-centered organizations, all together under one roof to talk about how can we accomplish three goals, sustainable farmer opportunity, land justice, and nutritional security. And they framed all of that, plants and plant-based foods, as 
critical means to accomplish those shared ends. If I didn't know better, I would, if I were listening, I would think this is a collection of vegans talking about vegan proposals. But I, I think the fact that they're not embracing necessarily the label as a, a vegan or a plant-based organization, you know, if you're building towards those outcomes, I think that we should be thrilled by that and we should be thrilled that they want to partner with us. And, and I am, and I'm so grateful for their work and to be able to learn from them. So do you feel like it's easy to relate those topics that you mentioned at the round table, like universal nutritional security and sustainable farm opportunity to a shift to plant-based agriculture? Is that like an organic, so to speak, huh? shift? Yeah, absolutely. And I have to give amazing credit to Alexandra Bukas, our senior manager of U.S. government affairs, who's hosted two events now on Capitol Hill, attracting more than 100 congressional staffers. The second event was sponsored by the ranking member of the Rules Committee, Representative Jim McGovern. And the topics were universal nutritional security and sustainable farmer opportunity, right? These are shared priorities. But when you went around the room and you listened to the national advocacy organizations like Farm Action, Center for Biological Diversity, mm-hmm. the local community organizations like GROW and the Corbin Hill Food Project, and even the congressional representatives and even the USDA, there was incredible recognition across the board that plants and plant-based foods represent critical means to achieve these shared goals. And I don't think we're going to convince the USDA tomorrow that a plant-based food system should be an end in and of itself, even though you and I completely agree that it should be. Mm -hmm. But I think we absolutely can convince them that plants and plant-based foods are critical to get them where they say they want to go. And if we just take them at their word and we hold them accountable to that, we can make so much progress. So then what are next steps? Yeah, so next steps are supporting Earl Blumenauer's Food and Farm Act. By the time that this has come out, we will have hosted another big, much more public-facing Capitol Hill event where we are bringing together that big tent coalition, where we're bringing together the press, where we're making what I'm sure has felt at times like a difficult conversation because we're talking about a lot of policy concepts and a lot of big theories. But at the end of the day, there's two messages that I want folks to sort of walk away with this year's Farm Bill around the Food and Farm Act and around the event we do with Blumenauer, Booker, and Chili Pingree's office. And that's number one, that our lives in today's factory food system are harmed and made worse off in so many ways by the Farm Bill. And our lives as animal beings, farmed animal beings, and human beings. And number two, we can work together to build the good. We can work together to build food system supply chains that work for animals, people, and the planet. And we have all the resources that we need to do so. We're just misusing them. And that misuse hurts animals, people, and the planet. And so deck steps are number one, hosting that kind of more public-facing messaging event that starts to represent this broader Big Tent coalition. And number two, a bunch of like very specific wonky campaign-y things like the cash back on Snap 30 cent for fruits, vegetable purchases. If you're on Snap, you get cash back for healthy choices. Number two, the GAO reports, the Government Accountability Office reports that we're working with Representative Rokana's office to shine a light on all of the different environmental harms that come from the current food system. And 
working with the USDA, local, state governments, civic sector partners, mm-hmm. anyone and everyone to number one, recognize shared priorities, and number two, start thinking critically about how we can use the resources that we already have access to to build the food system supply chains that we want that can work better for all of us. Okay, amazing. I like the brass tacks guide for people listening to this. Like, here's what we can do about it. I don't always get that from people I'm interviewing. You know, sometimes it's just like I mentioned, these sort of far off concepts and I appreciate how tangible this feels. So I have one more question for you before we get into our bonus content for our lucky flock members. You recently went from senior future food systems manager to senior director of advocacy at Farm Sanctuary. What does this change entail and how much will you be involved in the future food systems project? Yes. So I'm thrilled by the transition and I'm so grateful to Gene and to the organization and frankly to the wider movement. To be able to be a professional doing this work in this role is dream come true in so many ways. And I'm so grateful and humbled by the opportunity. And I think part of what we're doing is recognizing that we don't have two different advocacy agendas. We don't have an agenda to end animal agriculture and a food system agenda. We are going to end animal agriculture through just and sustainable food system transformation. We have one advocacy agenda for animals, people, and the planet. And yes, there are different priorities and certain bills might prioritize certain outcomes more than others, Mm -hmm. but it's a complementary, cohesive, unified framework where we can meet folks where they are and we can shift resources to support food systems that work for everyone. And we can also, at the same time, do even better to ground our animal-centered advocacy in the stories of sanctuary. When I think about Yoshi, a chicken person resident who is going through the amazing uh, research, which, by the way, is animal-centered and agency-centered happening at Farm Sanctuary, this totally radical paradigm-shifting approach to research that is amazing. And it's getting at that inner social life and thoughtful life and emotional life that we were talking about of the residents earlier. And when I think about Yoshi's experience, and then I think about what's happening in Hawaii to pass cage-free eggs, or when I think about what's happening with the avian influenza uh, epidemic, pandemic, uh, and the, the ways in which that threatens Yoshi, his flock, his friends, his neighbors, the way in which the entire factory food system creates so much harm for Yoshi as an individual. I think that we can do so much to ground our animal-centered advocacy and, frankly, our food systems advocacy in that sanctuary ethos of building the good and of really walking the walk. And when I think about the trust, by the way, that's the way I think about it. In the same way that sanctuary is walking the walk for animal-centered advocacy, the trust is walking the walk for our food system advocacy. Aaron, thank you so much for all of this. Can you tell our listeners how they can find you online and support your efforts? Yes, uh, it should be hopefully easy. You can follow Farm Sanctuary at Farm Sanctuary at all of the different social medias. I am unfortunately secretly an 85-year-old and don't really do the social media scene. So follow Farm Sanctuary and you'll see me there. 
I know some 85-year-olds who do the social media scene. I'm just saying. Oh, my God. No, you're right. That was so ageist of me. Totally ageist. Totally Oh, it was that. No, it was. It was. (laughs) I'm glad you called me on that. Thank you. And I'm so excited for this flock feature. I'm so excited, too. So if you're a flock member, be sure to tune in on Tuesday. And Aaron, thank you again for all that you're doing to change the world for animals. We so appreciate you. Thank you so much for having me. Social media has become such an important part of almost all of our lives. So please make our hen house part of that social media experience for you. You can like us on Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter or Instagram. We try to post some news stories to help you keep up to date on what's happening in the world for animals. You can also find us online, of course, uh, on our website, ourhenhouse.org, or you can email us. If you have some concerns or questions or something you'd like us to discuss on the podcast, let us know. Info at ourhenhouse.org. Anxiety surprising. Bunch of stories from Meeting Place today. This one is from our favorite, the Animal Ag Watch column by Hannah Thompson Weeman, who is now, of course, the president and CEO of the Animal Agriculture Alliance, which kind of <laughs> blows my mind because we've been following her for a long time. And pretty much all she does is rag on us. Extremists score another courtroom quote unquote victory. Her use of quotes in this article is so interesting. Usually, usually you use quotes when, you know, you're kind of commenting on the way somebody else is characterizing something, but you don't really agree with the way they're characterizing it. So you would think that what she's saying here is is they're calling it a victory, but I wouldn't call it a victory. But I mean, let's face it, an acquittal. <laughs> an acquittal is a victory. There's nothing you don't really need quotes here, Hannah, but um, I guess she likes them. Direct action everywhere extremists are finally facing consequences for years of trespassing onto farms, plants, plants. I always find that word funny. You know, that's what they call slaughterhouses. They call them plants. There's just something so odd about that. And other properties to steal livestock and poultry. Or are they? Uh, yeah, no, they're not. <laughs> While it seemed promising that trials are finally being held in various states for these incidents, DXE scored another quote-unquote victory last month when activists Alexandra Paul, former Baywatch actress, and Alicia Santuria were found not guilty of stealing two chickens from a transport truck. She is, not surprisingly, um, upset about this. I imagine most people in the meat industry are upset about it. And she's pointing out that if you're keeping score, that's two quote-unquote successful trial outcomes. You see what I mean? I mean, they're obviously successful, (laughs) at at least for the DXE people. I don't know. I don't know what she really means by all her quotes. So, um, you know, she goes on and on about DXE and how terrible it is and how they want all these things, like not slitting animals' throats and then eating their bodies. That's not how she puts it, though. But she does point out that the DA in Merced County, California, who was a real treat, I have to say, that's where the trial was held, says, not so fast. In a statement to the Fresno Bee, the DA wrote that the activists employed a quote-unquote mistake of law defense. That's actually a legitimate use, of course, which means that, quote, they believed it was legal to steal the animals in this instance. She made her perspective clear, stating, now there should be no further mistake that this conduct is illegal and anyone who commits these acts will be prosecuted. That is a problem here. They weren't allowed to bring their real defense. 
why, I don't know. It's crazy that they were not allowed to bring their rescue defense, that they had the right to to commit what would have been a crime in order to prevent a greater crime. And so they presented this mistake of law defense, which, you know, I don't know California law on this on this issue, so I'm not going to comment on it. But her point is, and it's a va- perfectly valid point, that, you know, now that this has been shown to be a mistake of law, it would be hard for other activists to claim this in the future. Is that the real reason the jury acquitted? I don't know. I mean, juries do what they're told as a general rule and follow, you know, the instructions that they're given. So we can't assume that that's not the reason. But a lot of things go into a decision by a jury. And here, I think sympathy with the goals of what was going on here and really just in the back of their minds, the fact that this really was a rescue. I mean, that's what most of their questions seem to be about. Like, it's kind of entered into their thought process as to why this mistake of law. And and they did have a legitimate mistake of law defense, if I understand California law correctly, because a, a law professor had said that, you know, there's a, a rescue defense, basically this uh, this lesser of two evils kind of defense. You can commit a crime to commit to avoid a greater crime. And unbeknownst to this law professor, (laughs) the law professor didn't know that this exception would be carved out for rescuing an animal as opposed to a human. But anyway, I'm, I'm getting too deep into the weeds here. I know. I'm sorry. All right. She goes on. My assumption is that the DA's words will fail on willingly deaf ears, farms and plants. (laughs) Farms and, it just makes me laugh. Farms and plants would be wise to prepare for an aggressive wave of quote unquote open rescue incidents. I mean, that's a legitimate use of quotes from her point of view. She's saying that's what they call them. I don't call them that. That's a legitimate use of quotes. I'm, I'm very hung up on quotes, quote marks today. For an aggressive wave of open rescue incidents as DXC attempts to capitalize on the so-called quote unquote support for its actions. You know, she could be right. I actually don't know what DXE's plans are. You know, they did a whole bunch of these open rescue a long time ago, and it took a really long time for them all to come to trial, and they're in the midst of them coming to trial right now, and so far that's going fairly well. There was a conviction of Wayne Shang in that case in North Carolina. He didn't get prison time. Um, and then there have been two acquittals since then, and there are more trials coming up, and we'll see what happens. I don't know whether their plan is to continue these. It really Everything got very delayed because of COVID, but so... Uh, I'd love to know. Apparently, Hannah thinks she knows. All right. Enough of Hannah. Let's turn to Gregory Bloom. Somebody who, this is not really a rising anxieties piece, as far as I know. It could be, but he's hiding it very well. He has never been at all sympathetic to anything plant-based. But, you know, apparently he has a new client. Protein and plant-based trends in 2023. What are you seeing? And he was at some show, some food show in Las Vegas. Apparently, it was a pizza expo. That's, I guess that's what they do. And he's commenting on two things. One is post-COVID meat trends. Even in this, this isn't the main point of my pointing to this article. But one of the things he's noting is in order, I guess, to save money, is the industry tends to reduce portion size. And he says, quote, I'm seeing less meat, bigger buns, and more veggies on the side taking up half the plate. That's pretty good news, isn't it? 
regardless of the fact of why they're doing it. It's good news for everybody. It's certainly good news for animals. You know, you take a little bit less meat in each plate and you think of all of the gazillions of plates out there that are being served with dead animals on them. And that adds up to, you know, a lot of animals. And also it's good for people because they're eating more veggies instead of the the cholesterol-laden crap that the meat consists of. Yeah, so win-win, win-win-win. It's good for us too because it makes us happy to see fewer animals, even if it's not none. But this is my real point of turning to this article. He says, for the plant-based panel discussion, we noted the many new small local and regional companies making some really nice-tasting new products. The national big dogs may be getting all the press, but quietly, many great new companies are succeeding in their market with niche products. As I mentioned, he now has a client, and he points out that he was representing the plant-based dry shelf-stable quick mixes that are sold business to business to food makers and into food service. I mean, those are, I guess, products we wouldn't be very aware of. But you know, now that he's got a client, the, the, the tune has changed. We're not seeing any anxiety anymore. We're seeing enthusiasm. Am I going to have to change this, the name of this whole segment to Rising Enthusiasm? <laughs> that would be nice, wouldn't it? Maybe soon. Goes on to say, one observation from the panel was that plant-based products are getting better and the category is still growing despite the headlines that show some big players pulling back or struggling. Headlines that he in the past has has emphasized, I believe. He still likes real pepperoni better than plant-based pepperoni. He wants to make that clear. But the offerings are getting better and he points out, if I was vegan or just wanting to eat less meat... Most of the plant-based products I tried were not disappointing. Now, frequently, they point to these products as being fine for vegans, which, of course, is not the point of these products. We're not the market. We're a tiny little itty-bitty piece of the market that may not even be all that enthusiastic about a lot of these products. You know, now that he has a client, (laughs) he's recognizing that these are also good for people who want to eat less meat, which should be everybody. He also points to a product, uh, a company from Greece, I would like to know more about. They had entirely vegan pizza dishes that were topped with colorful, fresh sliced vegetables, which he said was really good. You know, this is obviously another trend that they're talking about a lot. I wonder if others are talking about it, too. That, And I, I pointed to a column last week that was also talking about the same thing, that you don't need, quote unquote, fake meat, as they like to call it, or plant-based meats or whatever, to substitute for dead animals when you've got real vegetables. I mean, I think it's good to have both because as we all know, you don't just quit meat on a dime and switch to vegetables, most people. But yeah, vegetables. What an idea, what a concept. Eat vegetables. All right, chat GPT, watch out. Here comes AI changing everything. This is from the Meet Your Markets column by Matt Graves. I'm not going to talk about most of it because it's, you know, it's like just about the business, blah, blah, blah. But I'm just pointing to this one piece. We know how to control AI for animals, which is, you know, that's an ominous, you know, the more AI they have in these slaughterhouses, it's so Orwellian, you can't even think about it. But that's not my point. (laughs) I'm digressing a lot today, aren't I? But we don't as yet have a clue how to fully control nor use ChatGPT AI and its future iterations. And he's worried about it. His anxieties are rising. ChatGPT, he points out, is a private enterprise program that will bypass our inefficiencies to determine the quote-unquote best alternatives. But for whom? 
For example, the 26-month interval from a bull romancing a cow to a stake being generated AI may deem too inefficient to be perpetuated when compared with, dare I say it, the six weeks of cell culturing or cultivating needed to produce a similar edible meat protein for profit's sake. Oh my, is that what AI means? I hope so. I really hope so. Yeah, AI could decide that that's the way to go. AI could be smarter than most humans. I just have one more. I usually only have three, but I have one more today because I just thought this was weird. I don't even know what it means. I don't know whether it's anxieties or something else. But this is a story about Tyson Foods donating 500 pounds of food to tornado victims. The title is Tyson Foods donates 500,000 pounds of protein to tornado victims. And they go on to talk about, this is in Arkansas where all of these dreadful tornadoes were, and that they just keep using this word protein. They don't talk about chicken. They don't talk about turkey. The company is donating 500,000 pounds of protein in total, which is 2 million servings. They're partnering with Walmart and setting up cooking stations to distribute hot meals Tyson Foods team members will provide and cook thousands of pounds of protein while Walmart cooks prepared vegetable sides, bread, and dessert. Part of the protein donation will go to the Arkansas Food Bank. The company served more than 13,000 hot meals and donated 500,000 pounds of frozen protein to residents in another area. What is this all about? Why are they just calling it protein? I'm so- I, is it be, I mean, my most hopeful thought is that they now know that they're all going to transition out of animal-produced food and into cultured food, and they're preparing people so they won't have to suddenly switch. They can just call it all protein because it is all protein. There's nothing uh, controversial about that. It's not like they're calling it chicken, which, you know, would piss some people off. They're just calling So they're going to call everything protein, and then when they transition— They'll just continue to call it protein. That's my most promising interpretation of this odd thing that they don't even name. Or or maybe it's that they think people, no, people wouldn't be grossed out if they said 500,000 pounds of chicken. Uh, you know, I may be grossed out, but I just don't think it would bother people. What? What's it all about? I don't know. And that's it for this week's Rising Anxieties. Well, that's it for our show. As always, if you enjoy the podcast and you're able, we would be thrilled to have you join the flock by going to ourhenhouse.org slash donate and signing up for $10 a month or $100 a year. Or you are welcome to make any size donation that feels comfortable to you. You can also support us by leaving a glowing review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Like us on Facebook, where you can also leave a fabulous review, and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Our Hen House. Join our online community at ourhenhouse.mn.co and spread the word about the podcast to friends and family. The Mighty Networks platform, which again is at ourhenhouse.mn.co, is available to everyone, regardless of whether or not you're a flock member, though we do have a lot of robust information behind the paywall of the flock section. So do consider that when you're considering joining the flock. And if you already support us, thank you so much. Remember, if you become a flock member, you also get bonus content each week, an opportunity to have a one-on-one session with me, Jasmine, 
And you also get access to that aforementioned fabulous flock bonus area of Mighty Networks. If you donate $250 or more, we'll also send you a pretty fantastic Our Hen House brass pin. So thank you so much to those of you who support us. Thank you to my co-host, Marianne Sullivan, to Vicki Beachler for her work in producing this podcast, to composer Michael Heron for the music. Thanks to Eric Montgomery of the Podcast Haven for his work editing the podcast, to our production assistant, Jocelyn Martinez, and to Veronica Kalinska, who designed our logo and other graphics. I'm Jasmine Singer, and I'll talk to you next week. 